BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. I just said, look, be angry. We have to live in the same house so we can't be mean to one another. I will give you all the space you need. Welcome to the I Did Not Sign Up For This podcast, a weekly show dedicated to highlighting the incredible stories of everyday people. No topic is off limits. Join me as we explore the lives and experiences of guests through thought-provoking, unscripted conversations. And if you enjoy this show and would like to support this podcast, consider joining my Patreon. You'll gain instant access to over 70 exclusive bonus episodes, entries into giveaways, a discount on merch, and more. Your support allows me to continue bringing you these important stories. So head over to patreon.com slash I did not sign up for this and become part of the community. I'm your host Carling, a Canadian queer identifying 30 something year old providing a platform for the stories that need to be heard. Yay. We did it. We did it. <laughs> All right. I don't know. Fifth time's a charm. Yes, exactly. <laughs> awesome. Good morning, Barb. <laughs> good morning, Carling. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm good. I feel like we're best yeah. friends already. <laughs> I know. We just, if listen, if two people can get through like internet and technology issues together, I think there's no stopping us. I, I know. I think we're solid. I agree. I yeah. agree. I was just going to thank you for having me on your podcast. I really appreciate it. Mm. As a relatively new podcaster, a year and a half, so not that new, but I've met amazing people and heard amazing stories that would will never make it to a Netflix series. It's the amazing stories that exist are just great to be a part of. And that's how I feel about everyone I meet in this way. Like these, yeah. who knew I'd ever be talking to you? And here we are. Yeah. yeah, I know. I didn't even anticipate the amount of incredible people that I yeah. would have the chance to like meet and actually network with. And I love it so much. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. So let me tell your listeners who I am very quickly, yes. and then we can get started on all the juicy details of Barb. <laughs> Actually, we, that, that might be, the juicy details might be for another podcast, but at any yeah, rate. Yeah, fair. <laughs> so my name is Barb Higgins. I am 59 years old. I live in New Hampshire, Concord, the capital city. And all of my life, I've been a teacher and a coach since I was a grown-up. I've taught elementary school, special ed, phys ed, health, all manner of things, and I have been an athletic coach as well, primarily female distance runners. But now I'm in, I'm heavy into the CrossFit community. So I coach oh, CrossFit. I love at, CrossFit. Oh, me too. I coach CrossFit at three different gyms. And in the, in my journey from childhood to adulthood, I overcame asthma and some pretty horrific child abuse to try to be normal. So my asthma was a big factor for me as a child, but I started running in high school and was surprisingly very good at it. I uh, was able to go to college on a full scholarship, ran for Boston University. Spent many years running for Nike. Actually, in the summer of 1986, I had an amazing time running across Canada. We went wow. to all, we started in Nova Scotia and made our way west. We only went yeah. as far as Toronto and then came home. 
But oh my gosh, did I see some of the smallest, most places you would never go if you were just on vacation because you want to go to all the big sites. So that's a little connection we have. Amazing. And actually, when I was a little girl, I went to Montreal and I ran away for a few hours. (laughs) So I have a nice connection to Montreal as well. There's a big underground mall there. And I hit out. Yeah. Yeah. I hit out down there. I've been to it. Yeah. My, My poor grandmother. But anyway, she forgives me, I'm sure. So I had a typical life, a great athlete, moved back home, got married, had some children. Childbirth and child loss has been a part of my life since I conceived my first child, which didn't ever make it out of my belly alive. I grew him for about 25 weeks. So after that, having Gracie was a big miracle. And then two years later, had Molly. And this was in right around 2001, 2003. And then Molly died at 13 and then began my process into having Jack, who is now a two-year-old away from mommy right now at big boy school, which is a fabulous thing. So in a nutshell, that's that's Barb Higgins. So I'm a normal person who's had crazy things every step of the way happened to me um, to bring me to where I am right now. So that's a lot. Do you mind if I ask, how did Molly die? Yep. So Molly had an undiagnosed brain tumor. She had been having headaches and nausea for months leading up to her death. We went to the doctor's office once a week for six weeks and they just kept blowing us off. We finally called 911 because she was having this profuse vomiting that was like we'd never seen, called an ambulance, went to the ER where she laid for 16 hours just being given headache medicine. And they just were very uncooperative in helping, giving her a CAT scan or anything. And after 16 hours, a brain tumor ruptured in her head and ultimately killed her. So I I had a hard time with the medical profession for a few years. So yeah, Yeah. that was, yeah, that, that was tragic. And it's a big piece of the entire Jack story, which will unfold as I tell it. So Molly's death, she was alive April 30th and dead May 1st. There was no diagnosis. We didn't know about her brain tumor until really it already killed her. I'm a big advocate now for the for medical profession, listening to women. Yeah. S- stop just looking at me as a woman. Look at me as a human being. If I wasn't a woman and I had these symptoms, what might you do? Like how to look around yeah. what we see. And I think that's a message in life. Molly was a champion of those who couldn't reap rewards because they didn't have the capacity to do so. Let me give you an example. She had a classmate who never got the homework award because He didn't have anyone at home to help him with his homework. He had a very unstable life and he missed a lot of school because he didn't always have a ride to school. And so Molly would get all these points for finishing her homework on time. But we in my house had homework time and I helped her with it. I'm a school teacher. So she always went to school with her homework done. And it bothered her that the reason she got the award was me and that why didn't her friend have a me? Yeah. Why should he not get a reward? Because at age eight, he doesn't have someone to help him do his homework. So that sort of, so it's looking with more than your eyes at humanity. And I think her mission would be, we have a foundation in her honor too. And a big piece of it is let's look at human beings as human beings first and meet their needs that way so that everyone can have a chance to find out how they can be happy and what their purpose is here. Yeah. Yeah. That was a big answer to a small question. Sorry about that. (laughs) No, that, no, I, that's so amazing. I'm so sorry that happened. And she was only 13 when she died, right? Yep. Yep. She was, but she was one of those kids that made an impact. Her funeral was a musical review. Um, It was called Molly Be the Musical, and it filled a 1,300-seat theater. And it was all children in middle school and high school, and some elementary, who performed. There was not one adult performer. It was all children that she knew, and every performance was either something she had done or something she loved. It was terrific. It was just a big musical review. So I think that's what funerals should be, just a real celebration. Yep. For the chief neurologist at the hospital, she was transferred to a different hospital and they removed the tumor in hopes that she might wake up. And the woman that was in charge of her team, who always had delivered me the bad news, 
said, you need to do my funeral because <laughs> this is what a funeral should be. It was wonderful. Yeah. Another example of the community rallying around. I had chain restaurants like the Olive Garden give us food for free. And it was just this amazing celebration for Molly. So yeah, it was good. Wow. I look back on that with happy memory. Like her funeral, like the graveside service, which was just family. I, I look at that. That makes me sad. But the musical review was just such a beautiful thing. Oh, that's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Wow. And so then what is the next step on the journey to Jack? Yeah. So the next step on the journey to Jack, when Molly died, our family was Kenny and I, Molly's dad, my ex-husband, we were separated and struggling. We'd already been divorced, but we'd gotten back together a couple of times. So her death blew us up. And so when we came home from the hospital without her, Gracie and I slept on the living room floor here in this room for about two years. Kenny slept upstairs. Gracie and I had a hard time going upstairs for very different reasons. She shared a room with Molly. I couldn't use the upstairs bathroom because that's where Molly was so sick. Crazy things happen to you when you have a sudden trauma like this. And it doesn't have to be the death of a loved one. It can be any sort of trauma, an earthquake, a fire, a war, whatever. And so for a couple of years, our life was just, when I think back on it now, it's so foggy in my memory that it's hard to remember. Everything was just such a struggle. It was like living in a fog for us anyway. But shortly after that, I started having this very intense dream I should have a baby. And so, of course, my first thought is, okay, I'm 53. I was never planning on having a fourth child. This is grief. I just need to ignore it. But the dream was persistent and it became more than a dream. It became like the universe telling me something. And I know that might sound a bit hokey, but a dream is a dream and a message is a message. They're two very different things. So I went to my, I went to my doctor because I needed to have a typical yearly exam. And I let her know, I'm thinking of having a baby. What do you think about that? And boy, did she let me have it. She just yelled at me. You're in grief. This is ridiculous. You're in your 50s. It's dangerous. She really just shut me up. And it, it took me back a bit. Like she should have, she could have given me all that information much more kindly. But I think, yeah. I think it was maybe a slap in the face. I needed a little bit. It made me step back. It made me angry. And it made me feel like Molly must have felt. Like I'm telling you how I feel. And your opinion is what you respond with, not what might be the truth. So I found, I went back to a, an OB that had been a partner of my OB years prior. And he was actually involved in Molly's birth. So his name is Dr. Shottery, great guy, really good view on women and reproduction and all that. And so I went to him and had all this testing, told him about my dream, and he was all over it. Well, let's see what we can do for you. And so we did some blood work and he's like, your blood work indi indicates you're heading into menopause. So, you know, you'll probably need to use IVF and you'll need a lot of hormonal support, blah, blah, blah. But you have my support. So then I had to find an IVF clinic that would take me. So this was all in the first six months after Molly's death. So while I'm doing this, I'm on every prescription medication known to man to keep me from killing myself, putting me to sleep, waking me up, keeping me, you know, like all of the things that, that you think a mother might need. And I was drinking like a fish because I couldn't. I just couldn't handle this reality. So parts of me are very clear and wanting to do this wonderful thing, have a baby. I was listening to a voice in my head, so I was just following along. And then the other part of me was a disastrous mess, spending most of my time sitting in a chair in my yard because I couldn't stand to be in the house and I didn't want to go anywhere. So I have a beautiful yard, so I sat in there quite a bit. So after about six months, I found a clinic, this wonderful Italian man named Vito Cardoni, and he is as Italian as his name sounds. He's retired now, which breaks my heart because I'd go back and have another one if I could. Um, <laughs> he was just terrific, though. And he just looked at me as a person, not as an age. And at that time, mm. I was just 53, just 53. So, yeah. <laughs> and so we, it's rigorous testing. But before we even get to the other testing that, that I would have to do, 
he tested me, my uterus, my, my general health. There was a lot of psychological testing. I had to do an interview online, all sorts of things I had to do. In about February of 2017, so not even a year after Molly's death, I got the okay. Yep, we agree that you are solid and healthy where you need to be solid and healthy to do this. But I wasn't working anymore. I wasn't doing anything. We were still living in the utter rubble of the disaster that was Molly dying. So I just looked up at the sky and, I, you know, and IVF is not cheap, right? It's pretty expensive. Yeah. So I just looked up at the sky and said, stop. Okay. I did the best I could. If I can make this happen, I will. No more dreams. Because the dreams were so persistent. They were bothersome, if that makes sense. So they and went were away. They just dreams of you having a baby? One or two of them were very long, drawn out dreams that had more to do with Molly than the baby, but they ended with the baby. Sometimes it wasn't a dream at all. It was a loud voice that woke me up. So by the time I woke up, the voice had already said what it said. And it was, you have to have a baby. Sometimes in those early mornings that when you wake up and you're not quite awake, you know, I'd be in that half awake, half asleep mode, have a baby, have a baby, have a baby. So it was just, it, wow. yeah, it was just bizarre is the best way to describe it. But it went away. It, whoever was doing it to me or whatever was inside of me making it happen stopped. And for two years, I talked about it. It was in my, I would talk about it with Kenny. Now, Kenny wasn't even a part of this at first. I did this all by myself. I was going to ask. I was like, yeah. where's that missing piece of the creating of the an guy embryo? Part. <laughs> yeah. There's many ways to create an embryo. It's, it can be your egg mm. and your sperm. It can be donor egg, donor sperm. There's sure, an adoption yeah. embryo. There are 100,000 frozen embryos, hundreds of thousands. And lots of people give permission. They say they can be placed in other women. So it's like adopting a baby, but it's an embryo. So that piece of it we keep personal because some of it was a little unconventional, so I don't share it. Um, sure. But Jack is here and I grew him, so that's the big piece. But we researched all of that. It, the IVF journey, again, it was this amazing thing I never thought I'd learn anything about. There's some amazing people that help women have babies and become mothers. So, but it went away and we went through our lawsuit. Our medical malpractice is an ugly thing and anything that involves insurance is going to be ugly. And so a two-year ordeal of a medical malpractice lawsuit, I had a phenomenal law firm. The attorneys were kind and I learned a lot going through it. And so when it was finally settled, um, which is what happens with these, they seldom go to court, you reach an agreement, life could calm down a little bit. Now that was a big turning point. That was June of 2018. So two years after Molly's death. We settled the lawsuit, which meant financially we'd be a bit more stable. I could, and we could stop and catch our breath. It was a very hard time because it was like a second death of Molly. The whole time you're in a lawsuit, you're talking about your alive child and all the things that happened to kill your child. And so in my mind, Molly was out there somewhere still alive. And once it got settled and it was done, it was like, huh, now what? So we had this sort of rough yeah. couple of weeks where we didn't really know what to do. And, and then the dreams came back and it was like, a very strong. I look at the floor here because I was still sleeping here and my head was over there. <laughs> and so I woke up and I went and got coffee. This was maybe July of 2018. And I said, Hey, Kenny, guess what dream I had? And, and he goes, Oh, the baby dream. I'm like, yes. So we began the process and we decided to begin it together. Gracie knew nothing of this, we kept it from her because I just felt like it was, she didn't need one more thing to worry about. And as the process unfolded, I was glad I did. I went back to all the doctors involved, my local OB, Dr. Cardoni and the reproductive the IVF clinic. And so began the journey of the test. So I had to have a colonoscopy. I just had one. I needed a mammogram. I needed a, an EKG. I needed blood work. I needed a complete physical and a write-off from my own doctor that I was healthy. I needed my local OB to sign off that he agreed I could do this. So all of that was the beginning. Then I had to go off all that medicine. I had to give a list of my medications. It was this long. And my doctor, Cardoni, said, look, it's going to take you a while. 
this is good. We have about four months of hormonal stuff we need to do. You need to get off all that medicine and I'll need your doctor to sign off on it. So I have newfound respect for drug addicts because let me mm -hmm. tell you, I was prescribed those medicines and it was painful to go off. It, I sat down with my primary care and we had a big calendar and we just listed the medica medications and what I took, how many tablets a day of those. And we just each day or each set of days was one less of something. So I wasn't just cutting anything out. And right. it was just this process. We started August 15th and we finished December 1st. That's how long it took. Wow. So along with all of the, yeah, so it's Xanax and I can't think of them now, all of the Lexapro and Citalopram and Zoloft and all the different medications that we get put on that are very controversial sometimes. But I was able to get off all of those, but I have a mouth condition called trigeminal neuralgia. And you have a nerve in your brain that sends impulses to your face. It's a three-pronged nerve. It's your eyes and your forehead, your cheek and your nose, and then your jaw and like your lower lip. And so mine's down low. So for several years, I felt like I have a toothache. And I had all these tooth teeth pulled thinking I had a dental problem. And I didn't. It's a nerve problem. And the nerve fires and tells you that you hurt, even if you don't. Some people have it in their head. Some people have it in their face. Mine was my jaw. So I was on medication for that. And that's all anti-seizure med and nerve block. So I was on gabapentin, Tegretol, Topramate, all for this. It's a lot of medicine. Like I think back yeah. now and I wonder how did I function. So I had to go off all of those. And so the face pain became intolerable. And I realized that there's no way I could grow a baby with all this pain. So a coworker of mine, I was back to work a little bit now, said, hey, do you have trigeminal neuralgia? And I just looked at him like, how would you even know what that is? And his next door neighbor had it fixed, had surgery to fix it. So that surgeon was once in Boston, which is near me, but he had moved to New York City. So I got his name. I reached out, explained who I was and why I was reaching out. Would he be willing to see me, even though I lived in New Hampshire, and see if he could fix my face? And so he wrote back and said, absolutely. Here's my information. You need to get an MRI with contrast. Once you have the MRI appointment, call my office and book a follow-up with me. I'm like, great. So December 10th, I had my MRI. This was 2018. I go home. I'm sitting at the kitchen table with Kenny, sipping coffee, and my phone rings, and I look at my cell phone, and it says Neurological Associates. And I'm thinking, nobody gets a phone call one hour after an MRI with good news. So I answer the phone, and my neurologist can hardly speak. She's so distraught. My daughter, Molly, danced at the same dance studio that her son dances at. So we had that dance school connection. And she said, I don't know how to tell you this, but that MRI shows that you have three brain tumors. So I'm sitting at my kitchen table. I've lost Molly to a brain tumor that I didn't yeah. know she had. And the whole time I was fighting for her, I had them in my head and didn't know it. So I hung up the phone. So Kenny also at this time needed a kidney transplant. He said he had an autoimmune disorder that was killing his kidneys. And so he was very sick. And of course, after Molly's death, his health really plummeted. So we're sitting at the kitchen table. I have brain tumors now. Kenny is getting sicker and sicker with his kidney disease. And poor sweet Gracie is a senior in high school who just wants to be normal and happy. So we're just like, what? So I pick her up from school and I have to deliver this news to her. Now, because they didn't, I had a CAT scan several years prior and nothing showed up. So that was a sign that these were not malignant tumors, that they were tumors that were likely either like a cyst or or just a non-cancerous growth. And actually roughly 75% of human beings have these tumors in their heads. Nothing ever happens. They don't ever do anything. It's like getting a cyst or a mole or a wart, but it's in your brain. So mine mm -hmm. was a class stage one meningioma, which is the best kind of tumor to have if you have to have one. So I, did, I found this out, of course, after, but I went to this doctor, went for my 
doctor's appointment, December 19th, with this MRI, with the brain tumors in my head. And he knows my whole story. He had Googled it and looked up Molly and all of that. And so when I arrived, he was ready for me. And he just took my hands into his hands and said, you don't worry. You tell the Gracie, I'll take good care of you. and We'll get that tumor out. So instead of one little brain surgery to fix my face, which he also said he could fix, I first had to get the tumors taken out. So I have a giant scar now on my head that goes from my part line down behind my ear. And they took out this tumor, this gigantic tumor. I never had any symptoms of the tumor, but had it continued to grow in there, it likely would have caused vision and hearing problems. And it was putting pressure on my carotid artery. So I likely would have had some manner of a stroke. And he thought not too long that the tumor was at a critical point. So I thought, okay, maybe this is why I was supposed to have a baby because I would never have fixed my mouth. I just would have taken the medicine for the rest of my life. So I had surgery January 10th, 2019. Out comes the tumor. February 28th to March 1st, I have radiation for the little tumors that are on the other side of my head. That was terrifying. I don't, you just have to get all Hannibal Lectured into a vice. It was awful. You know, they have to put, yeah, it was gross. I have pictures. And then April 10th, I had surgery on the other side of my head to have my face nerve condition fixed. So there I am. So in the process of trying to have Jack, I'm now very bald and recovering from two craniotomies. So I can't see straight and I'm just a mess, but I feel good. Like, and other than what might happen from having your head cut open, I feel pretty good. So we get into May and June and getting to the time where my neurologist now has to sign off that, yes, she can have a baby. So think about in our, in American culture, everything is negotiable and lit- litigation drives medical care in the United States and right. pharmaceutical companies. It's not common sense medicine here ever. So these are doctors that were willing to sign off on this. I was 55 now. So I'm, I did everything I needed to do to be healthy. In this same time period, a good friend of Molly's and Gracie's who danced at their school was on, we found out she was on life support for anaphylaxis. She had a food allergy and had eaten some peanuts that she didn't know were in some food. So she ended up being brain dead long enough in her anaphylaxis that she would never wake up. And so here's a family going through exactly what we went through almost exactly three years later. So Kenny and I, in our what can we do when we feel so crappy time, jumped in and helped this family. Just we raised money for them. We went and visited at the hospital. They were at the same hospital that Molly had been at. We ended up becoming really good friends with them. In the process of them deciding to unplug their sweet girl, Rachel, who had danced in that big variety show of Molly's, she was in the opening number. They asked, had we been able to donate Molly's organs? And we couldn't because we didn't know if her tumor was cancerous. So they didn't let us. It wasn't cancerous, which was heartbreaking because Kenny could have had her kidney. So I shared this with Jen, Rachel's mom. So this family ultimately gave Kenny one of Rachel's kidneys. So Molly's dad has a kidney that danced in her feet. So this is all in the process of making Jack. (laughs) Jingle, jangle. It's wild. I know. We were so sick at the time. And the main reason we helped them is we just felt like we had to do something that would make us feel better. And always when you help someone else, it makes you feel better. And there, there are tons of connections. Rachel's birthday is the day that we unplugged Molly. So they share that date. Like their graves are, we can't see them. If all the other graves were removed, you could see Molly, Rachel's grave from Molly's and vice versa. But they're in the same cemetery close by. I don't visit Molly without visiting Rach. It's one of those connections. So now Kenny's very healthy. So all of this was going on in the first year of the journey to Jack. By the time I got approval to go back to IVF, all of this had happened. We go back to IVF now and we're ready to do the, do a, you know, create an embryo and do an IVF transfer. So all of that takes place in July and August of 2019. We go through it, shots in the bum, <laughs> hormones, patches, all the things that go into, there's nothing sexy about IVF 
conception. Let me just be clear. <laughs> it involves a lot of needles, patches, and other people around. Yeah. You're never alone. So the first transfer did not work. And so I thought, well, I guess that's it. That's my journey. My journey for this baby was to find these brain tumors. Kenny has a new kidney. I am healthy now. We, when we went back for our sort of follow-up, but my nurse did tell me, stay, keep taking the estrogen. Just keep taking it until you have your follow-up appointment. So I get back. We go back to Dr. Cardoni and he sits down. He goes, how are you feeling? And I said, fine. And, I, and he said, it was not your body that made this not work. It was the integrity of the embryo. It wasn't you. I, he goes, there's no, there's, I was certain that you would be pregnant. And I'm like, we could try again. And he just grins at me and he goes, are you twisting my arm? And I said, only if I have to. And he takes a notebook out and opens it. And he goes, no, I'm ready. I have a list. So he just had ideas as to what we needed to do differently. And one of them was we used Kenny's sperm. So our initial sperm extraction, because Kenny's had a vasectomy, so they take it out with a needle. I don't feel bad about that. I have to grow the baby and push it out of my coop. Yeah, so he can, yeah. he can have a needle in his testicles for 12 seconds. Big deal. The doctor's thought was that maybe post-kidney transplant sperm would be stronger and healthier. Everything else he thought was fine. That's the one thing that we changed. We were ready to do an IVF transfer again in March of 2020. And we all know March of 2020 is when COVID exploded into the universe and everything stopped. Everything stopped for me because I had everything I needed. It wasn't like I was waiting on eggs or sperm or anything like this. It was just, we couldn't go into the office anymore. We just had to sit tight through April and May and June of 2020. As things started to reopen up medically, Dr. Cardoni called and said, you're coming in right now. You're coming in first because he was retiring and he was very protective of me. He just got a kick out of me, I think. And July 26th, 2020, I go in and have an IVF transfer. And he was there and it was on a Sunday and he never came in. So this other doctor was setting everything up and I was sad. I thought Dr. Cardoni should be here. And one of the nurses says, he doesn't come. He doesn't work on Sundays typically. And in who, who walks in? Dr. Cardoni. He's like, everyone, she's mine. So it was just, we had this wonderful experience. And you can, when you have an IVF transfer, there's a little TV screen, like a monitor. And so they insert the embryo with a needle, of course. You're all knees to the breeze for everyone in the room. And in goes the needle and you watch this little fluorescent green, teeny tiny dot float into the abyss of the uterus. And there it is. You see it there. We had a hug. It was mass time. So we had a hug and an air kiss goodbye. And we walked out 10 feet apart and he waved to Kenny in the parking lot because, you know, everything, it was all very different. It was COVID. And 10 days later, I got the positive pregnancy test that I was indeed pregnant. And it's, it was just one of those Okay. So Gracie still knows nothing about this. And, and my main right. reason, again, I, one less thing for her to worry about or have an opinion about or feel anxious about. And so, how old was she at this point? She was 19. Now she turned 20 a month after Jack was born. So she was 19. So, wow. and I was 55, 56 when I had the transfer and 57 when I got the news that I was pregnant. When you got the notification, like you're pregnant, you found out what goes through your mind. And then how do you tell people? What went through my mind was, holy crap, it worked. Because I wasn't, up until that point, I wasn't even sure the whole process was about the baby. I just felt like it was about as, as much about the process as it was about the baby, which is completely different for IVF professionals. I would go in very, well, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And most women at fertility clinics are frantically desperate. So right. it was just like a different reality for them. I knew before the news because they tell you not to pee on the stick, but come on now. <laughs> I think everybody pees on yeah. the stick. Oh, yeah. So I have a drawer full of them. I think I finally just either put them in a bin in the garage or I threw them away. I don't remember. But <laughs> every day and every day I was a little darker. So I went down there with pretty clear evidence that I was. Everything went through my head. Okay, so I'm pregnant. So I'm at the next step. 
again, I wasn't looking even nine months ahead or however many months ahead it would be until I had Jack. I was just looking at where I was now. All right. So getting pregnant was a piece of the story. So I called my local OB. So for the first 13 weeks, I was still under the care of Dr. Cardoni. It was weekly visits to his office. It was injections and patches in my butt. It was all the hormones, everything. For 13 weeks, you continue all that. And I guess that's how long it takes for the body to sort of kick in and take over. I don't know. So when I called my local OB, he was actually in the delivery room with my stepdaughter delivering her son. <laughs> the day I found out was the day she went into labor. So it's a weird little coincidence oh there. God. So I'm about to have a step-grandchild while I'm delivering news that I'm pregnant to the same OB. We share an OB. So yeah, I know. So he was like, okay, number one, say nothing to anybody. This is nothing. You're not my patient for 13 weeks. I'm going to pray that, that I end up seeing you in 13 weeks. But this, my advice to you is just don't say anything. And Kenny and I agreed on that. So a couple of people knew. The people that knew, I, no one even knew I was going through the process. I mean, this was a very secretive thing. There were maybe five people in my life that knew I was going through the IVF process. So 13 weeks, the rest of August, all of September into October, significant chunk of time. Because the day that I found out, they count that as six weeks, even though I only really yeah. been pregnant for 10 days. 13 weeks was like the end of October. So I make it there. I have my last day of injections and patches and all that. And that's when I got really nervous because I thought, okay, if this isn't going to work, it'll be now. But it did. I didn't even, everything seemed fine. This was the time that Gracie found out. And she found out because I was on the phone with my OB making an appointment in a conversation she overheard. And she's like, why are you making an appointment for a baby checkup? And I'm like, because I'm pregnant. So she had a very hard time with it. She was so angry. And I just feel like it's not my place to tell her how to feel. She's had no control over all of this, these things that have happened to her. So she was pretty angry, really angry. And I just said, look, be angry. We have to live in the same house so we can't be mean to one another. We have to push the pause button and have nice dinners. And then we can go back to being angry. I will give you all the space you need. And so I think that was helpful because she got to deal with it in her way. She had a good therapist, a couple of good people that she could go and confide in. I'm like, you can tell people. I would prefer that you not blast it around. She didn't want anyone to know. And I think part of it, too, is she's 19. So, ew, my mother's pregnant. Yeah. That's creepy. So now began the next sort of chunk of time. And so I thought, okay, I can start to tell people now. And my, again, my OB said, nope, not for 20, not until you're at 20 to 22 weeks. And I'm like, that's like the new year. That's like January. Like I, I will be, what? And he just said, we will do every test in the world to make sure this baby is healthy, but you're going to be judged. A lot of people will judge a woman your age having a baby. So let's not let the world know. And then if something were to happen and the baby doesn't live, you don't have to go through that publicly. That's something you can go through. You have control over how that works now, not the public. And I'm like, okay, that was incredibly helpful news for me. It also gave me a chance to just enjoy this pregnancy by myself. And so yeah. it got to the, I'm very fit and athletic. I work out at a CrossFit gym. So I'm going into the CrossFit and my belly's, my CrossFit coaches knew because it was a health concern, but they knew not to say anything. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. So I remember a good friend of mine came in and she said, oh my God, I can't get rid of this belly. And it was like Thanksgiving, Christmas season. I'm like, oh, me too. And I'm patting my belly. I'm like, God, I feel pregnant. She goes, me too. Except I know I'm not pregnant because my belly is squishy. And, of, and I said, my belly's hard as a rock. And that was sort of how I started to tell people. It's just menopause belly, except I, mine has a baby in it. And they wouldn't believe yeah. me, that kind of thing. I didn't say much. But as I, as I started to get into later, and it was more obvious, I slowly started to let people know. But every test I had was perfectly fine. Two funny things in my testing process is one, my insurance denied it every single time because it says diagnosis inconsistent with age of patient. So I had an ultrasound for a baby and they would deny it because I'm too old to have a baby. <laughs> so when I would call, they would say, it's go- the computer's going to kick it back. We know everything's covered. Don't worry. But it was just so funny, again, throughout the whole pregnancy. And then the other piece was they plug your information in, very specific to like the health of the baby and all this, and the software would kick it back because it wasn't programmed to work with an age of 57. It was programmed to stop at 49 or whatever. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. How about you just stop it at a hundred and then it will take every age. So I went along and didn't tell too many people. Slowly but surely people started to know. They didn't believe me, but I had a recording of the heartbeat on my phone. So I would just say, listen, here it is. I had little ultrasound pictures on my phone so I could slowly let people know. And the most common response was what I call gray face, like nothing. Hey, I'm 22 weeks pregnant with a baby boy. And they'd be like, what? And no expression at all, just nothing. There's just silence. So little by little, people started to know because it was harder to hide. And I just felt like it was okay for people to know. I told my family had wonderful, just so excited and happy. Kenny's family was a little bit different. He has three children from his first marriage who are all in their late 30s. And then Gracie and Molly, if Molly were alive, she'd be 20. And now Jack. So he's got like kids, grandkids, great, you know, like his own kids. Yeah. And kid could be. So he's got like generations of kids. So his daughter was pretty distraught and unhappy. And she actually didn't speak to us for several months. Again, it's not my place to judge how she reacts. We all react with our life and what we bring to it. And, but she was really difficult. It was really hard for us. It was one piece of the story that I have to take a deep breath when I think about it. But you know, it's, it's, everything's as good as it's going to be now. And we have family get togethers and it's all good. So Jack has two nephews that are older than him (laughs) and a niece who's five. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. So we, that all went along. I had to have a fetal echocardiogram and the baby that I lost at 25 weeks died of a very intricate heart defect, which is one of those things he was born with. And so I donated his body to a hospital called Children's Hospital of Philadelphia because they do a lot of research on neonatal heart issues. I could have kept him and buried him and had a little gravestone for him, but this way he could help other people. And sure enough, his autopsy and they did like 3D printer of his little broken heart. They've been able to create surgeries and things that they can do so that the baby can actually be born and survive long enough to have life-saving surgery. When I was wow. pregnant with baby Gordy, those surgeries didn't exist. So he might have made it nine months, but when he was born, he would just slowly drown because his heart was upside down and backwards. And it was just completely not able to function outside of the uterus. There have been 11 babies, I think, that have benefited from baby Gordy's little heart. So I had to have this test and it was at the same hospital that I had the test on baby Gordy 20 years prior. The nurses all know about Molly because it was the same healthcare system. And I just talk about everything. I talk about baby Gordy donating his heart. Dr. Rockenmacher with the thick Irish accent. 
the cardiologist comes in and she's a woman and she's, she sits down and I think she's going to give me news. She's very serious and I get all nervous. And she's like, so tell me about the baby that you lost. And so I tell her all about baby Gordy and the heart. And she said, and when was this now? And I'm like, 1999. And she said, I performed the autopsy on that baby. <laughs> Why? I know. Do you see what I mean? I didn't sign up for this, right? Oh my so God. We have this whole story about baby Gordy and his heart and how damaged it was and how grateful medical professionals are when mothers do these things. So yeah, she was completely wigged out. She didn't normally work on Tuesdays and she didn't normally do pediatric echoes. She was more with adults and she got called in because somebody else couldn't come in or whatever. Talk about the universe putting her right where she needed to be. I told her the whole story, the Rachel story. All of it comes into play in the miracle that is this little two-year-old boy named Jack. So Jack was due April 13th. Right around St. Patrick's Day, I started to have really high blood pressure and all of these weird symptoms. And so I was diagnosed with preeclampsia, which lots of women get preeclampsia and nothing to do with age. Although I think age, it might be more prevalent in older mothers. I had to go in and have Jack induced and I was furious. This was the one time that I stopped letting the story tell itself because I really wanted Dr. Shottery to deliver Jack. He was going to be away. He chose that weekend to go away because he thought he, he could then be there when Jack was born. So I had to go in. So I had super high blood pressure. They didn't want to let me leave the hospital, but I hadn't done any like prenatal picks. I had all these things that I was determined to do. So I'm like, I just need to go home and pack. I live half a mile from the hospital. So it's the same hospital that Molly died in the ER in. They pretty much do whatever I want because they, yeah. they just want to be nice to me. So yeah. I came home and I packed my bag, but I called my photographer. She came over. We did all these pics. I called my friend who works for a local news media outlet to start the interview about Jack's birth. Like I did all this stuff with blood pressure, like 195 over 105. Oh my God. I know. Like the fact that I didn't have a stroke, I'm just a stupid woman, but I went back to the hospital and then proceeded to have Jack. I went into labor in the middle of the night. I didn't even know I went into labor. They stripped my membranes and I woke up in the morning thinking, oh, I must not be having the baby because I just thought I would get woken up with Pitocin injections, all these different things. I had an IV and everything. So I ordered breakfast and I watched the news and I'm chatting with Kenny on the phone because COVID protocol was still in place. So once he came, he had to stay. I just said, don't come until I go into labor. Gracie was at a dance competition. The doctor comes in, how are you feeling? And I'm like, fine, are we not having a baby? And she just looks at me funny and says, you've been in labor since three o'clock this morning. So I'm like, oh, maybe that's why my tummy's a little hot. So this is about 9.30. So I call Kenny, you better come. I think I'm in labor. So he shows up, they break my water. I, was, I absolutely go into labor. It's just as wonderful as I remember. <laughs> I had pretty easy labors with both Gracie and Molly. Actually, the most difficult delivery was baby Gordy who was this teeny tiny fits in your hand baby. He took the longest. So we go through contractions, everything else. I get, I climb up into the bed and they say, all right, one good push should do it. I give this big giant push and out comes Jack. He was like my one push wonder. This teeny tiny little five pound, 13 ounce bundle of boyhood flies out of me. One big giant push. And I had all women, like the OB was a woman. The nurse was a woman. The two LNAs were women. The hospitalist was a woman. Like it was just this all in the woman who delivered my baby was filling in the woman in charge, like the neonatal nurse in charge was a month away from retiring. So we had like older women there. My favorite LNA was 19 years old, just out of high school in this whole merry band of women that just helped Jack arrive into the world. It was like one big giant party. It really was fun. Kenny and Jack were the only guys involved. <laughs> That's um, amazing. Yep. And he was healthy. He had all the things in early babies. He was just at the beginning of week 35. So 34 completed weeks. So it's still early, but not considered preemie. And he did great. He nursed right away. I was, my milk came in. I was able to deliver. I used a milk bank. There's a little group in New Hampshire called Human Milk for Human Babies. It's like a Facebook-based group. And women that can overproduce milk share their milk. So I had a freezer full of frozen breast milk to supplement me 
which was super helpful, especially in the early days where Jack was, he was new. So his little throat didn't work. And they were like, oh, put him on a bottle, just feed him formula. And I'm all for formula. If that's what you decide, I'm no one else's mother, just my babies, but I'm a hardcore breastfeeding advocate. That was what I wanted to do. So there are amazing women that plow out the milk. That was me with Gracie and Molly. I had more milk than I knew what to do with, but not so with Jack. But I'm still nursing him. He's two. So 57 years old with a baby. So that was that. So I have Jack. And like with anything like this, I've had tons and tons of support and tons of naysayers. But for me, like for my journey and why is that little boy here? He's the most amazing little child. And everyone who meets him feels that way. And I know children are like the purest form. You're like the best example of how we're supposed to be as grown up. If you want to know how to be, follow a two-year-old around. That's how we all yeah. should be. Everything is new and accepted equally. Kenny, his dad is 67. He'll be 68. In September, he'll be 68. He's not young. Wow. You know, Jack's oldest brother will turn 40 in a month, but he brings such energy and light to our house. He and Gracie are tight. He calls her sissy and she was much better. Once the pregnancy part was done and the baby arrived, Gracie jumped in 100%. She works in early childhood, so she's a, okay. she's the, she's a baby whisperer anyway. She just adores Jack. And she's gone away to see her boyfriend or been away or whatever. When she comes home, when she comes home, it's a reunion. So that's my crazy story from, from the disastrous, ghastly, horrifying reality of child loss to creating a baby, growing him and delivering him and feeding him with a body that the whole world will tell you is too old. Molly died at 13. She shouldn't have died. She was far too young and healthy to die. So clearly it's not age that indicates when we die. There's a million other things that play into it. And here's Jack, this perfectly healthy baby that I'm still able to feed. And I'll be 60 in July. If there's any sort of like lesson for me in this, it's that how I have to face life in order to be okay with everything is to just accept it as it's presented to me and not make preconceived notions about what can or cannot happen based on what I'm seeing. And do you think, I don't know, like I think Molly had a big part to play in this. Do you think she is somewhere else facilitating all that? I think she's right here is what I think. Jack has a big connection to Molly. From the moment he could really recognize items and things, he had an affinity for ladybugs and Molly's stuffed animal is named Ladybug. She was Ladybug in a play. She loved ladybugs. She drew them all the time. It was one of his first words. There's that connection. Obviously, we have pictures of Molly everywhere. There's a painting up there of Gracie and Molly. She's everywhere. And Jack is unbelievably connected to her. I also think children have a much, the the veil between this world and whatever the other world is very thin for children. I think it gets thicker as we get practical and analytical and all of that as we get into our cynical adult phase. But no, I think Molly plays a huge role in it. I think that, I think she's a huge piece of it. I think she knew about my brain issue and I think she knew that I had to have something happen that would make me fix it, my mouth and everything. And a baby was a good way for that. And I wasn't ready to not be a mom. When Molly died, she was just finishing seventh grade. So I still had five full years of watching her grow up. And suddenly it was just Gracie was entering her sophomore year and I was suddenly almost done and it panicked me. I will be honest, there are moments now when I think to myself, okay, (laughs) Gracie's going to be 22. I could just have my life to myself. But at the same time, as a 59-year-old mother, if I want to go to Mexico, I'll go to Mexico with Jack. If I want to go to Vegas, I'll bring Jack to Vegas. Like, I don't have the struggles with child raising that I did 20 years ago. I don't have to go to a full-time job either. I set my schedule. I have the financial resources. But I also just am not hung up on so much of what I was hung up on 20 years ago when I was raising. Yeah. I don't really care what I look like naked anymore. I want to be healthy, <laughs> but yeah, so many ships have sailed when it comes to my body that as long as it can pick up heavy objects, like I, I was in a CrossFit competition yesterday. I can still kick the asses of women 30 years younger than me. I have all those ways to celebrate my body that doesn't require a mirror. <laughs> That's so amazing. I love that. Do you find there's still a lot of judgment from people 
maybe further out of the circle, like people you interact with, they make assumptions or judgments? Absolutely. In my local town where I grew up here, I live in a town that reminds me of a middle school cafeteria. You're defined by the table you sat at for the rest of your life kind of thing. So I have a lot of judgments in that realm. And people who knew me before Molly, I had a really traumatic job loss before she died. So I've had several years of like very public sort of drama. So sometimes it's why if I had a memoir, it might be called, oh, no, here she comes. Because it's like, what now, Barbara? What now? It's that kind of thing. (laughs) And then I have anything you do publicly, it's going to have its haters. And I don't have too many haters, I don't think. But I do know like in the IVF community, when I look at comments A lot of women say it was very selfish of me. I'm too old. What was she thinking? But I also know, again, we react to things based on our experience. So whatever happened in those people's lives brought them to that feeling. It doesn't mean they're wrong. There's validity in everyone's thoughts on things when you look at it from where they're coming from. Not necessarily valid in acting on it. There's no validity in mass murder. And so I have to take an open-minded approach to it. Sometimes I want to scream at them. But again, I don't know those people. So all I can do is except the fact that's how they feel. It doesn't make it easy. I did a TV commercial for the hospital in New York. So it was Montefiore Medical Center in New York City, and they're attached to Albert Einstein School of Medicine. They're located in the Bronx. They flew us to Utah, filmed this beautiful commercial about just arising from the ashes of grief to find joy. And it was the most amazing experience ever. And that commercial in and of itself was quite controversial, which again, if it stimulates conversation, then it's a good thing. It's making people talk. And there was like a 33-story picture of Jack and me on a building in Madison Square. You come out of Penn Station, and it's 33 stories of Barb. So that was fun. I had a a lot of people see that was up for about six months. So I've had amazing response from the news media and people that have the ability to share. And I would say 90% of the reaction has been positive. And I would say 50% of the negative reaction is valid negative reaction, questions, asking, assumptions on money and insurance and all the things that go into this, the IVF community. There are beautiful 30-year-old women that have 10 failed IVFs that can look at me with resentment. Of course they can. I'm 57 and mine worked. Why doesn't theirs work? I will never, ever cast judgment or anger on those women because their journey is not my journey. And I'm lucky. It's not lost on me that I live in a body that defies odds in a million different ways. Just that's the body I got given or my soul house or whatever you want to call it. It's, it, I live inside of this. So it's never lost on me how lucky I am. So then where did the podcast come from? Well, the podcast came from my self-blame and self-hatred around Molly's death, quite frankly. And so I had Jack and it was right after I had Jack. I went through some postpartum, I wouldn't say depression, but like anxiety. I was a bit of a basket case and I was biting everyone's heads off. I was really wigged out. And I'm just like, oh my God, I have to talk to somebody. Therapists were impossible to come by. It was still a lot of COVID things related to that. And I just wanted to talk. And so I I had started to listen to a couple of podcasts and I thought, oh, maybe I'll do a podcast. And a lot of it is around getting over my self-blame for Molly's death. And so Kenny and I were separated at the time. I was dating another man. That was a huge issue in my home life. Kenny and I had an apartment. I lived in it for a week and he would live here. And then we would switch so that Molly and Gracie could just live an uninterrupted life. So in that regard, my life was actually settling down. And I went away the last week that Molly was alive on a vacation with this gentleman that I was seeing. And I came home and Molly died the next day. It was just traumatic. It was just, it set, this is what I mean, a very juicy story. And so what I needed to do was just tell the story. And I also had this baby that I wanted to share with the world. So for me, it was really a therapy. And where I'm at now, I just recorded episode 85. So I call the podcast A Thousand Tiny Steps because as a health educator, 
I often told my students that we don't make decisions. Things don't happen in one decision. Somebody doesn't fall through the ice in one moment. They took a thousand steps on that ice, believing it would hold them until it doesn't. Do you know what I mean? So they made the decision to skate. They made the decision to skate where they skated. Maybe they defied the sign that said the ice wasn't safe. When you trace any event back, so many things go into that event. And I called that episode a thousand tiny steps. And we would analyze things in our life that had happened. I'd have them practice. So I would have them practice on good things. So I would be like breaking five minutes in the mile. I was the first high school girl to do that. So I would trace my steps all the way back to what got me to join track in the first place. So it wasn't one race. It was three years of training and everything went into that one thing. So my podcast has essentially just been me telling my life story. And the only time I leave out anything is when I have to change a name (laughs) or leave something because I want to hurt other people. It's not my place to tell someone else's story. But I tell my story. I talk about Jack. I talk about Molly. Talk about my child abuse. Talk about my job loss. I talk about all of it. Very unabridged and very raw and open. I talk about my relationship with Roy and how I started that relationship before my marriage was over. I have to own those things. And people knew anyway. So I just make sure that I tell these stories in a way that doesn't hurt the others in my life that were involved. But that's where it came from. This has been such a, a helpful journey for me as a bereaved mother who really just wants her daughter back to a new mother who can't believe <laughs> I have this yummy bundle of pudge that's mine um, yeah. and that he's going to live a life that he's here. And Kenny and I sit right here and watch him. And we're just like, what have we done? Here he is. <laughs> and he's, oh, he's a feisty one. He's very articulate. He wants what he wants when he wants it. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I love that so much. Yeah, me too. And you're writing a book, right? Or have you already yes. written it? So the book is written. So I have a good friend who is an author. And when COVID hit, her husband lost his job. They're from England. And they were going to have to go back to England and didn't want to. And so I said, look, Virginia, I'm never going to write this book. Would you write it for me? Would you ghostwrite it? Would you interview me and, and write it? And we can work on it together. And I will pay you. And then you can stay here for another year in the United States. And so That's what we did. So yeah, so Virginia McGregor is my hero. And so we're in the process right now of doing all the final edits and we'll have a late August release date, I think. Maybe early September. A lot of people go away in August. So we're trying to think of when when would be a good time to have everyone home and ready to start new things. And sometimes that's the end of summer. I can't wait for that. that. I love that. All while parenting a two-year-old. All while parenting a two-year-old, yes. (laughs) And coaching at three CrossFit gyms and teaching online phys ed at a public charter school. <laughs> oh my god. Sure, why not? <laughs> yeah, just add another thing. Why not? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So where online is the best place for people to find you? So I have a website, a thousandtinysteps.com, and I also have a foundation website, the mollybfoundation.org, which talks all about Molly and some of the things that we do there. But my the podcast is everywhere. I also send out a weekly email, and I'm one of those people. I can't stand a weekly email that's 50 paragraphs long convincing me to buy something. So I will right. never, ever use my weekly email to sell a thing. It just isn't oh, going to happen. That's nice. What it is, every Tuesday, I haven't written this week's yet. I'll write it tonight at the last minute per usual. But I just talk about this week and what's going on with me. Um, and you can sign up for that on the, on the website, A Thousand Tiny Steps. But my podcast is everywhere. It's on Spotify, Apple Music, all the different, I don't know what they all are, but it's on every channel. Any place you can listen to a podcast, I'm there. And so awesome. that's, I have an Instagram Barb underscore four, four, four. And then I have a Facebook page, Barb Higgins, and I live in Concord, New Hampshire. So that's me. So I'm very open. I'm so appreciative that you reached out and that we were able to connect despite some major internet issues. Yep. yep. Yes. And <laughs> we both started in one room of our houses yep. and moved our way yep. to closer to our router, but yep. we yep. did it. Yes, we did. Yay. Yeah. 
Thank you yeah. so much for doing a podcast like this. It really does give voice to people that might not have a place to talk about their lives. It takes a, it takes a big person to understand and have the space in your heart to do it. So I really appreciate it. it Thank you. Yeah. yeah. My big thing is just like everybody has these stories. And if yes. we're sharing them, it shouldn't always just be celebrities in these big names sharing stories that right. maybe aren't as relatable. But I agree. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Well, I'll let you go. Enjoy the rest of however much of your child-free day you have left. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I have a lot of child-free day left, but. Oh, so good. It, good. This has been so wonderful. Thank you so oh, much. Oh, thank you so yeah. much. All right. All right. Have, an awesome have a day. good one. Thanks. Bye. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode. I hope you found our conversation informative and entertaining. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to follow me on social media, share this podcast with your friends, and leave a review at ratethispodcast.com slash I did not sign up for this. Your support means the world to me. If you want more interviews, exclusive content, and ad-free episodes, join the Patreon at patreon.com slash I did not sign up for this. I hope you all have a fantastic week ahead, and we'll talk soon. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hey there. Welcome to 7th Heaven, a lesbian recap. I'm Lindsay, and I'm joined by my co-host and real-life partner, Carling. We're diving into the 90s hit drama through today's lens. Get ready for our off-the-cuff commentary and peeling back the layers of the Camden family. We'll tackle everything from family rules, life lessons, and 90s fashion. Join us every week for a light-hearted queer perspective and a trip down memory lane. Whether you're a die-hard fan or new to the show, this recap is for you. So find us anywhere you get your podcasts at 7th Heaven, a lesbian recap.